This week's John Tapp Racing Podcast is brought to you by Inglis, number one in its field. Ask anyone who has owned or part-owned a winning racehorse to describe the feeling and they'll tell you to win for the first time at a bush meeting is pretty good. To upgrade to a midweek metropolitan win is even better. A Saturday win in town is beyond belief, and a Group 1 win is surreal. 19 Group 1 wins and 26 on the trot is the impossible dream. Peter Ty, part owner of Winks, has been walking around in a daze for well over three years now, as the champion mare has been steadily compiling her record sequence of wins. Peter Ty manages Magic Bloodstock Racing, which has one third of the mare. Richard Trawick has one third, and the other share belongs to Debbie Capetus. Peter Ty joins me on the podcast this morning, and it's great to catch up. Peter, thanks for your time. Oh, good day, John. Thanks for having me. Peter, before we get on to the champion mare, congratulations on yet another win with yet another mare, unforgotten in the Chelmsford Stakes at Randwick on Saturday. What a great turn of foot she's got. Yeah, she's a nice mare to have as a, as a backup to Winks, you could say, but uh, we've always had a quite a big opinion of her and um, we've just been taking her along quietly. Uh, she, she won the ATC Oaks last year and um, Chris has um, taken her on a similar pattern to... Uh, to a lot of his mares, just um, sending him out for a good spell and bringing him back and just see if they can reproduce. And she certainly come back with uh, some authority there yesterday. You've got a vast array of races to pick from, but she looks an ideal Caulfield Cup mare, doesn't she? She does. I think that's she's bred. She's bred to run those distances. She's proved that she can run them. Um, we, we just hope the handicap, handicap is a little bit kind to us, but I think that would be Chris's main... Uh, go forward with her is to mm. plot a course towards the uh, Caulfield Cup and then just see what happens from there. Peter, I want to release an exclusive piece of trivia about you and your life in racing, and I reckon I've got this one to myself. <laughs> I happen to know that you are a former chairman of the Rockley Trotting Club. Yeah, Yes, John, that's... Uh bit of a lifetime ago, but that is correct. I, for a short <laughs> period of time, I served as the chairman of the Rockley Trotting Club in Brisbane. The Rockley Trots on a Saturday afternoon were part of Brisbane's social fabric for years and years. Oh, look, it's probably where I cut my teeth <laughs> as a as a young punter and uh, where, where I fell in love with the, with the sport of not just trotting. Um, you know, we dabbled in, my dad and I really uh, dabbled in trotters and greyhounds and Rockley was a quite a it was a great social Saturday afternoon social event. We never missed it. I went there from as early as I can remember as a young boy, and um, mm. you could you could bet on the gallops. Uh, we, we we could bet on Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, and Gold Coast. Mm. You couldn't bet on Brisbane. They wouldn't let you bet on the Brisbane. It was the, some licensing issue or whatever it was. But yeah. you couldn't actually bet on the Brisbane gallops. But you could just about bet on everything else out there and and the trots at the same time. The track. It closed down years ago. It came to the end of the road, but I believe the place is untouched, Peter. You drive past it every day. Still there? Yeah, I, my, my business and where I work is at, uh, is at Rockley at the uh, fruit markets, and um, I drive past probably not every day, but quite often I drive past. And uh, well, I don't think there's a, I don't think I've ever driven past where I don't stop and reflect on what happened there. And it, mm. it looks basically exactly as it did 
before it closed down. It uh, mm. might have a few more weeds growing around the place, but uh, it's it's a barren, just a barren racetrack really, and uh, with all of the amenities and everything still sitting there, um, and uh, not used at all for anything to do um, with horse racing or trotting or horse racing or anything. Your late dad, Kevin ran a thriving wholesale fruit and vegetable business at the Rocklea Markets, and he purchased that business many years ago from a remarkable man called J.H. Levy. Now, Peter, at the time of that sale, J.H. Levy was 99 years old and still working. Yeah, that's right, John. He, um, you know, I used to go to the – I've been going to the markets with my father since I was about five years old. And uh, I, I do recall um, poor old Mr. Levy. Um, I was still at school, obviously, at the time. Um, but he came to the markets uh, every day as he'd had done for his 99 odd years. And um, mm. it was funny. He took ill. He took ill and, and finally um, didn't, didn't quite make it to the 100 years old and took ill and passed away. And mm. with his passing was a, was a sale of the business, which uh, – my father and a, and a partner were um, were lucky enough to buy. Very, it happened all very quickly. Yeah, around about 19, 1970, I think it was. And um, mm. yeah, we, we we took over the business, um, or Dad took over the business and um, traded under the same name as Mister Levy because it was a a legendary name back in those days in the fruit and vegetable game. When your dad passed on, you took the reins and you ran the business for a long time before you decided to sell out to a New Zealand company called Global Fresh a few years ago. But they invited you to stay on as CEO and you're still there. Yeah, John, that's exactly how it all happened. Um, Global Fresh are, um, are quite a big client of the company. They're, they're a very big New Zealand avocado company. They, they have farms and packing houses and it's a family-run operation uh, by a gentleman by the name of uh, Andrew Darling. And Andrew and his wife have four sons, and he's a little bit younger than I am, but he runs his business very much along the lines that we've run ours for many years and a family-owned and operated concern. So, mm. yeah, it was it was a great um, it was a great thing that happened. He was keen for to, to get into this side of the wholesaling side, and I was probably coming to the the twilight of my career after I think about 38, 40 years in the market, mm. and um, we sat down and, and discussed how we could do it in a very seamless way, and um, he didn't want to move from New Zealand to Australia, and he he, um, he asked if the sale went through that I would stay on as um, the CEO and run the company in Australia for him, and uh, it just seemed a, a match made in heaven, and it's been two years, just over two years now since it took place, and I don't think we've had hardly a thing change. It's just run exactly mm. the same as it was, um, you know, two and three years, or as it was 10 years ago, but um, no, it's been very good, and um, it allows me to... Um, work early mornings and, and probably do more racing in the afternoons. Peter, I'll get you to stand by there. We're going to take a short break on the podcast. Back in a moment. For over 150 years, Inglis has led the way in the field of thoroughbred auctions. In 2018, Inglis again sold the most yearlings at the highest average. Last season, Inglis was number one for Group 1 wins and the only auction house to sell a Group 1 winning two-year-old. They sold four, in fact. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis, number one in its field. My special guest is Peter Ty, part owner of the champion mare Winx, and we're talking about Peter's early life in the horse racing business. You've been a racing nut all your life, and the very first horse you were involved in 
was a horse called Franciscan Magic. He won three or four races, but he started it all. Yeah, he, he did. Um, well, well, sorry, John, she did. It was a, she was a, a mare, a filly, filly yep. mare, and um, I bought a, a share of that horse from a from a partner, or not a partner, but a a um, one of the fellas at the markets. Um, and he uh, he'd raced a few horses, and I think we met at a football match, and said, you know, would you like to buy a share of a horse? And my wife wasn't oh, big into the horses. I like to have a, a bet and and, um, and muck around and go to the races and do all that. And she wasn't that big in it. And I thought, oh, I'll buy a share. She might get involved a little bit. So we bought a, I think, a quarter share in that horse. And um, she, and like you said, she won three races, um, gave us a few dollars, and um, with that we bought a, another share and then another one and. It just grew from that, and we've we've had some moderate success early, uh, but it enjoyed. It, it, it wasn't so much about chasing the success, but you know, my wife really got the bug and enjoyed going to the races. We had a mm. great social side, and um, we, our first trainer, um, a gentleman called Alan Bailey at the Gold Coast, and uh, his wife June, we, we we struck up a great friendship, and um, we used to go to the races whether we had runners or not with Alan and June, and, and every time we went, we always had. Um, we always had lunch and, uh, and and enjoyed enjoyed the social side of it, meeting a lot of people, a lot of friends we still got today, and um, mm. a lot of business acquaintance. So it really just became a lifestyle. Alan Bailey is long retired now as a horse trainer, but he was uh, a bloke of immense warmth and friendliness, a very talented trainer and a very astute one. Oh, look, you couldn't find a better bloke than Alan Bailey. He, he was... You know, just a great man, a great trainer. He ran a great business. I mean, we he taught us, Patty and I, my wife Patty and I, he probably taught everything we know about racing etiquette, uh, you know, how to um, do the right things and, and, and how things happen in the racing world. So you know, the whole thing was a great learning curve with Al and, uh, and June, his wife, and we just had such a ball. We, we went from, you know, we travelled from Brisbane to Sydney to Melbourne and, Eventually took us on a, on, a, on a owning some horses in Singapore. Uh, yeah, he he really uh, he really was a great player. He's still a great player. I mean, there's no uh, there's no denying that fact. And he was a most well respected man in racing. He was probably I don't think I've I know there was there's great men in, in in Cummings and and Tommy Smith and people like that. But I remember going to the races with Alan Bailey, and one of the things that stood out in my mind was that every leading trainer in Australia, no matter where we went, came up to speak to Alan. It wasn't the other way around, and the, the great respect that they all had for him was something I'll never forget. He trained your first really nice horse, Make Mine Magic. He won almost a million dollars. Yeah, he was uh, he was probably the, the the catalyst for where we've ended up today. Um, you know, we we were happy racing a, a few little ordinary horses, and you know, a funny story. Just it was related to uh, Make Mine Magic was related to one of the horses that we. Work we were racing and um, uh, had a, a partner at the time who used to race the horses with us by the name of Eddie Edwards, mm-hmm. and Eddie was very keen to buy this horse and probably wasn't on our radar and he uh, he was keen to, to get hold of it and um, look he worked on me and he worked on Alan and and the and the owner to, to he was trying to get the price down and get us to buy in and Alan train it and. He, he worked whatever he did worked, and we ended up purchasing. I think, I think we purchased him for twelve or sixteen thousand dollars. So mm. it was a, that was a probably a very big, 
and I think we raced it like we took 75% and Eddie took 25% and then mm. Alan came and checked it out and you know we just hopeful like everyone else and it was one of those cases where we'd have been happy to win a, a midweeker or mm. anywhere at all just to win a race and this bloke just it just was something we couldn't understand where he came along and he won his first six starts in a row he just kept mm. going from a maiden at Ipswich to um, winning the Gold Coast Guineas I think it was in his first mm. prep and mm. um, he stamped himself as maybe being something out of the box. So um, he and he and he raced for such a long time. He was, I think, he retired like when he was eight years old or eight or nine. He he, mm. he gave us this journey of racing, you know, on the, on the east coast, which um, you know stood us in good stead. And we he took us to some of the best races, um, you know, on the east coast, um, going to Sydney and Melbourne. I mean, he was he actually went down to. Um, um, he, he went to Melbourne to try out for the Cox Plate. Mm. Alan, Alan sent him down to have a, um, a track gallop one morning and they actually televised it on Sky Channel. And uh, I, I never forget, I was in Brisbane and we watched it and uh, it was probably the, the worst horse ever to go around Mooney Valley. He didn't handle it one iota. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore, the, um, the plans, the great plans to go to the Cox Plate were abandoned. He just didn't go at all on, at Mooney Valley. And um, yeah. we, uh, we targeted several other races. Um, but he um he certainly um he certainly proved his value to us. He went around a few other tracks and won almost a million dollars. Pete, you and Paddy yeah, yeah. raced a handy filly with Richard Treweek a few years ago by the name of High Rollin' Woman. She won five and she ran third in the Magic Millions two thousand and eight. Yeah, that's correct. I I think that was the first horse we bought with with Richard. Um, Richard was a client of Alan Bailey's, and that's how we got together, and that's how most things happen in racing. We, we didn't know him before then, and we bought this filly. Um, well, Alan, Alan really liked her, and, and we bought her, but I said to Alan, we, we can't afford to, to keep all of her. Mm. Uh, you know, like we'd like to probably sell half. And he said, oh, I've got a, he said, I've got a really nice old bloke from Sydney. He said he comes up here to Brisbane, and, he, and he'd, he'd love to buy a horse. He said he's a really good – he's a good payer. He said, and he's just a good bloke. And I said, oh, that sounds right. So with that, we we um, we split the horse in half and, and we raced it with uh, with Richard. And um, mm. she was a, a great little story where she um, was unfashionably bred by God knows what. Um, mm. I can't even think what it was. But, but went on to win three three or four in a row. It might have been the th- first three starts. And she qualified for the Magic Millions and then ran third in a Magic Millions, which was just mm. you know, like, Going to a new level for us, just getting a runner in a Magic Millions is fantastic. You had a small share in a pretty good horse with Chris Waller in recent years by the name of Preferment. He finished up winning $3.5 million. He won four Group 1s, a Victoria Derby, Turnbull Stakes, an Australian Cup and the BMW. And it's not all that long ago when he retired, Pete. He was still racing just over a year ago. Yeah, that's right, John. He... um he was an amazing horse. It was a the, the thing behind uh, preferment was was Chris Waller had organised uh, several of his owners to um, go to New Zealand and buy half a dozen staying type um, colts and, and fillies that he believed would um, mature and be good at the um, the riches in Australia in the Oaks and the Derbies. And Chris mm. had come up with this plan and like everything, you need a few dollars to buy the horses. So I think there was. I think there was eight of us in the syndicate, and we we, we might have thrown in, oh, look, throw eight hundred thousand dollars between us. So not all of us, mm-hmm. but it wasn't really expensive. And we ended up with six horses, and we got quite a good, you know, a handy bunch. And out of that bunch came Preferment, who um, 
you know, like against all odds, won his uh, first race as a maiden, being the Victoria Derby. Mm. And he yeah. just he just took us on a great a great trip, um, you know, through all those big races in Australia. He he was a you know, I've just I was just talking about it yesterday with my wife that you know, like he took us to we raced him in a Caulfield Cup, a Cox Plate, and a Melbourne Cup, and uh, he didn't have success in either of them. But I mean, just to get a runner in those races, uh, any racing enthusiast would understand. Just to get a starter in those races is just something that you do dream about. Before we talk about Winks, Peter, I want to ask you about a fellow called Guy Mulcaster. He's a New Zealand bloodstock agent whose expertise is sought after by many trainers, many horsemen, including Chris Waller. Yeah, well, Guy's probably the uh, bit of the secret weapon that we have um, in our armoury as our bloodstock agent. His um, expertise is second to none. Um, his record his record would now put him as the number one bloodstock agent in the world, I'd say. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't believe anybody could have purchased uh, more Group 1 winners. Um, you know, I'm sure Winks helps him out, but he, he was the catalyst behind the preferment. Uh, preferment, uh, he bought Sacred Falls, he's bought, uh, he bought Kermadec. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he is just like, his eye for the thoroughbred is, is second to none, and he's, he travels the world every year. And he has a worldwide client base, and like you said, he's he's sought after everywhere. Um, and he's um, he's just an absolute expert at what he does, and and we couldn't thank him enough for what he's done for us. Peter, let's go to the Friday of the Magic Million sales in 2013. You didn't buy a horse on the Wednesday or the Thursday, but Guy Mulcaster had recommended a filly by Street Cry out of Vegas Showgirl at the Friday session. Now, did you go into that sale, into that day with a limited bank? Well, we, we started on the Wednesday, John, with a limited bank, and Guy, as he usually does, he inspected every horse in that sale, which he does all the time. It, it started, actually started in the uh, December, November, December of the previous year, going to the studs to look at the horses, um, and then uh, he, he'd come to the sale to reinspect them, um, uh, his usual, he, he goes through the sale, he picks a short list um, or a long list, I suppose, and then the, the list goes to the vet, mm. Tim Roberts. Tim Roberts would examine the x-rays, check the horses, um, and then he would come back with a final list to us. Then it was for me and Debbie and Richard because we had said we wanted to buy a horse and mm. at, a, at, a, at a reasonable sort of price. So everybody's a, everybody's a budget hunter in this business, so... Yeah, we, we went there on Wednesday with exactly the same thing, and, and we had horses on the list on the Wednesday and on the Thursday, but that sale from, from where we started was a bit red hot price-wise, so we had missed out on several horses on the Wednesday and Thursday. Um, they just went for too much money for what we wanted to spend. So mm. we got to the Friday, and, and there was a special affinity with this uh, filly that um, – Guy had, had seen the mother race Vegas Showgirl and, he, and he'd known her. She was a New Zealand mare and he'd seen a race there and in Australia. And he always sort of had a bit of a, a, a bit of a kind spot for her, if you, so to say. And, um, mm. you know, he said he really likes her and, and we, were, we were happy, to, um, we were happy to, to go along with his judgment, obviously. And um, I think we were sitting there. It was me and, me and Guy and, and Chris sitting at a table and, and I think Debbie was uh, at a table beside us in the auditorium there at Magic Millions and um, we started the bidding and uh, it was, I think, my must have been my turn to bid or, you know, whatever, but 
we'd bid and we were hoping to spend about oh, 150, 180,000, maybe a little bit more. But mm. when you're bidding on behalf of other people, it, it's um, a bit daunting. Where you know, where do you stop? Because I, I, I can't stop. Richard, Richard wasn't there. He was he was back in Sydney, um, mm. and Debbie was there. And uh, as the bidding got to the two hundred thousand dollar mark, we um, I thought. I was working out, well, if I go above the budget, well, I might have to take a bigger share of the horse, which will cost mm. me more, and, uh, we know, whether the others want to be in it or whether I buy it. So all these things, and, and don't forget, there are auctions going at 100 mile an hour as well. So we um, we had a bidding. We ended up with a bidding, a bidding duel with another, and I can't think who it was. Um, and uh, we got to uh, we got to the 200, the 210, and we got to the 230 was my last bid, and I'd asked Chris several times on that journey to get to the 230. I said, look, you know, do you really like this horse? You know, like, what do you think? And he said, and he would say, look, I do. I really like her. She's really nice. And mm. the guy was sitting there and he was always of the effect that, of the opinion that he liked her. So once we got to 230, I really think that was about it. I don't think we would have had any more to give because mm. I was spending other people's money. And um, with respect to, to Debbie and Richard, we, we didn't have a, a bottomless pit. So, look, as history goes, the hammer fell. We got her. And um, she went into the um, the Chris Waller process of um, what he does with all of his horses. Nothing special, just take her away and and um, sort you know, them out. Sort them out. Her, sort them out. Yeah, break her in and, and do what he does with with all of the horses that we uh, because that year we had bought we had we, we ended up buying several horses between there and and Caracas sale and and then uh, the English Ealing sale. So you know mm. she was one of one of six or seven or eight horses that we'd bought a share in that year. Mm-hmm. Let's have a look at Vega Showgirl, Peter. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will be interested in her breeding history. As you said, she was pretty useful herself. She won seven races. She actually ran in a couple of group ones without winning, but she was good enough to get there. Now, Winks is the second foal. The first foal was called Miss Atombomb, and she never raced. She had breathing problems. Third foal went to Hong Kong. His name was Win Win Leader. Never raced. Fourth foal, El Divino by Schnitzel. Two wins from 12 starts. Gay Waterhouse had him for a while. Darren Weir finished up with him. He hasn't raced for well over a year now, so that's where his record will stand. Two out of 12. Then a Schnitzel cult called Boulder City. Unraced. Standing at stud in Queensland at a service fee of $5,500. And then followed uh, a two-year-old filly, which has just gone into the Kieran Maher stable. And there's a yearling filly by Exceed and Excel. Have I got that right? You'd be right up with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, you're, you're pretty spot on there, John. Now... What about the mayor? Uh, she was sent to Japan this year, I think, uh, to Deep Impact, one of the most expensive stallions in the world. That was the plan. Did they go through with that? As far as I understand, I haven't. I, I believe that was the case. Um, I haven't tracked that down. I've just heard the stories, and I um, probably just been a bit busy on a few other things. But I believe that to be the case, and I believe it has happened. And and, and she's back and. Mm. Everything uh, looks good going forward. Well, let's fast forward two years now, Pete. Winx has had 10 starts, four wins, including a couple of Group 2s. She ran second in the Australian Oaks, and then she was to go for a spell. Now, what were you thinking at this stage after running second in the Oaks? Were you thinking, 
nice filly, this. We're going to have some fun with her. Oh, we were. We, we were probably a bit disappointed. There was there's quite a lot of hype and speculation that she'd win the Oaks, and, you know, we, that's probably the time where you you get a bit ahead of yourself and think it's um it's going to happen and everything's going to fall into place. And then when she got beaten, we, we were a bit, well, I suppose, a bit gutted, but not heartbroken or anything, but just thought, well, mm. you know, what do we do? We just thought we were going to win this and then <laughs> send her for a spell and then come back and, you know, win the Melbourne Cup sort of thing. You know, we, we didn't mm. really know what we were doing. And when she got beaten... You know, it was just it wasn't it wasn't anyone's fault in particular. It was just the way the race was run and what happened. And better, man, better horse got a better run on the day and beat us. So, Christy said, "Look, she's done a really good job. Um, we'll put her out. We'll, we'll put her for a spell." And that was on the on the Saturday. You know, when we were in mm-hmm. Sydney, and um, said, "Yeah, that's fine. No problem at all. All good as gold." So, um, we we flew home from Sydney on the Sunday. Um, I, I remember being home on the Monday, and I think Chris. I'm pretty sure Chris rang us on the Monday and said, "Look." Mm-hmm. I've uh, been having a look at the programming and, um, you know, we'd really like to win a group one with this filly. And if we get a chance, the this year, the, the uh, Oaks in Queensland is going to be run at Doomman due to the closure of uh, Eagle Farm. And it's going to be over 2,200 metres, which would be really good. If we gave her a quick two-week break um, out of the farm, we could bring her back, get her ready and have a crack at trying to knock up a group one with her. So um, he spoke to me, Debbie and Richard, and uh, I think we all had a bit of a phone call. We said, look, if, if that's what you want to do, we, we certainly weren't going to argue with him. And uh, that was exactly what happened. She just went straight out uh, on the Monday, I think, to um, to the farm mm-hmm. uh, for a quick um, freshen up and and uh, just with this very, very optimistic plan of you know, coming to win the to Queensland Oaks. But by this time, we'd um, certainly um, um, worked out that it just doesn't always happen the way you want it to happen. So we were happy to go along with it. Um, and, and more than happy to uh, to put her in the races, the Sunshine Coast Guineas and then the Oaks and uh, see what we could do. Larry Cassidy rode her in the Sunshine Coast Guineas and it's now become legend that he went home and said to his wife, Michelle, I've just ridden the best horse I've ever been on in my life. Yeah, look, he, he it was a sort of, it started out as a bit of a, well, I wouldn't say a nothing day, but it was a quiet day at the Sunshine Coast. It was the Guineas. It wasn't a, a big, big race day. There was a lot of shuffling of the meetings in Queensland because of the closure of Eagle Farm. So there was a different different races at different times. And this just fell into the pattern um, of a lead-up race for the Queensland Oaks. And uh, Chris had sort of said to us, he said, look, we'll send her up there. It'll be a good good run for her, you know, a nice big track. She can spread mm-hmm. her wings. And, and uh, if, she runs, if she runs fourth or fifth, it'll be a really good um, pipe opener, you know, to going into the, uh, the Oaks. And I thought, oh, yeah, that'll be fine. So it was a fairly quiet day so nobody traveled up from sydney it was just my myself and my wife and i think there was a young handler uh with the horse and um so it was just we were hoping just that she'd come back and everything was right and um my god it just turned into something that you know we still look at it in amazement but Astonished. you know and larry and, yeah. and larry got, and larry got the ride and you know we, we we'll chat with larry before the race how are you going and you know he said yeah and he said oh they sort of want me just to, you know, give her plenty of room and explain what Chris had said to him and mm. I said, yeah, that's fine and, and off he went. And so we were just <laughs> we were standing uh, along the main straight with about another 10 or 15 people. That's how quiet it really was. And, um, mm. you know, the, the way the race panned out and coming to the home turn and she was there last. She last, last of 18. There were 18 runners and she was stone last turning yes. for home. Yeah, she was, and, and you know, you're looking at that. And I'm thinking, oh well, she could run home here, run fourth or fifth, It'd be a bloody good run, you know. That'll be a good trial for that. <laughs> yeah. So you've got a, a million things going through your mind. I'm standing next to Patty, and 
Yeah. Patty's looking at me thinking, well, this ain't real working out real good. And, and then mm. I said, oh, well, hopefully she'll come home. And I think we were sort of in a bit of shock and awe as, as we stood there and in, in, in yeah. high ground level right beside the, the track on the rail. And um, it was like a, it was a bit of a gust of wind. Uh, it's funny to say the horse had beat her in the ATC Oaks. Uh, mm. She was like a gust of wind and just blew down the outside and uh, just astonished everybody, including – Oh mate, Alan Thomas, the race caller, who, mm. who, who he, he admits to me that he'd given up. He didn't think she could win, mm. so he wasn't even worried about calling her at uh, at the four hundred meter mark. And um, and I think Larry was um, Larry was hanging on for grim death because he was going that quick. He didn't know. Uh, <laughs> he he just wanted to keep his bum in the saddle, really. So yeah, uh, yeah it was a, in, in hindsight, and the stories were really really good. But just just what a great you know season opener for um, yeah you know near a three year three year long trip. Well, that was the first of 26 straight wins. Now, Pete, at what point did you start to feel the pressure? Was it 10 straight, 15 straight, 20 straight? <laughs> when did it start to get to you? Oh, it's, it's, it's been like, like even when she – I can remember back when it was like six or seven. Like, I mean, you, there's not many horses running in the country, even around the world these days, that can put six or seven. And when you're in, mm. in the city on a Saturday. So – you know, we're just thinking, oh, you know, like, how long can this keep going? You know, and, and it, the pressure is growing, the expectation is growing, and, and everybody, you know, just would keep telling you that, oh, you know, she'll just win, she'll just win. And, it, and you know in your own heart that that's not, that's not what racing's about. It's, mm. it's, it's all about ability, but there's a hell of a lot of luck involved and barrier draws and wet tracks and dry tracks and so many, so many, many variables and, and so many horses you're coming up against that are up and comers so mm. it's it's something that you know it, it's a funny way to describe it but it's something we've had to learn as we've gone along you know how to how to manage it how to um how to put up with it and um how best to keep things you know keep level-headed and feet on the ground so it's just mm. something that as the horse has gone to a to a new level and she's just kept going level after level after level mm. there's not one there that i can say we sat down and said, "Well, this is it. You know, she's she's a bloody champion. It's it's really she's always been our champion. After she won her first yeah. race, you know, yeah, I mean, we, we just loved her as our own. And mm. but um, the expectation of the of the public and and the and the press and you know the things they write and things you have to read and listen to, you, mm. you bloody hell, it's um, they're a hell of a lot more excited about it than than we were just thinking how, how good it is just to have a winner. Now, Peter, when she's racing." Do you and Patty sit in the stand or do you get yourself away into a quiet corner and watch on a television monitor? No, we leave that for the television monitor is Chris Waller's domain. Mm -hmm. And as as it's probably just the way we started out a bit, we we've gone down well, of course we've raced a lot in Sydney, um, but have always gone down right uh, where the um, enclosure is where they come back after after uh, after they race and mm -hmm. we stand Right on the running rail, the outside running rail. Mm. So we've got. It's funny. We've we've always gone there. Um, Debbie has got a spot where she goes with her girls and her husband Paul and, and the three girls and mm. and her family, and they stand in, in a little bit behind us. And and then Richard Chawik's family will, will stand sort of between us. You know what I mean? So yeah. and it, as it's evolved, we just sort of go to the same spot, not for any reason for us, but it's just convenient and it's. You get a good view and it's lovely. So, um, so we all we all now just mill in the same spots when we go to Randwick or when we go to Rose Hill um, down in Sydney or even you know even in Mooney Valley. We we just go to the same spot. So, 
bit of a creature of habit, I think, John. It's, uh, it's easy just to do the same thing rather than trying to change. And, Peter, what emotions prevail? Uh, you know, are you handshaking nervous? Do you feel sick in the stomach? What are the emotions uh, that you experience it, while from the time she goes onto the track? Yeah, it is. It's it's funny how it, it just goes from one extreme to the other, trying to put out of your mind or trying to put out of my mind exactly you know, what we're involved in because it's the enormity of the situation. You know, from my point of view, is is it can make you cry, it can make you laugh, it can make you do a lot of things. But just that, firstly, that we get out and we get a clean run, and 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 Huey certainly makes sure of that. That you know, he stays out of trouble, and it's just such great anticipation by the racing public. So, um, you know, whether you turn around at Randwick or you turn around at Mooney Valley, and there's thirty odd. 30 or 40 odd thousand people standing there cheering as one for the one horse it really is something unique so I, I suppose you'd feel a little bit of a uh, di- di- disappointment if she were to be beaten on on behalf of everyone else not just us I mean yeah we've had plenty of losers you know we, we've we had 20 years of losers before we got her so mm-hmm. we know how to lose and uh, but just learning how to be um, you know a good winner and, and, and not a you know, not over the top. It's just that's just not me. I'm I'm, I'm busting inside, but probably not yeah. throwing cartwheels on the outside. But yeah, we like loving it as much as anyone else. You know, Peter, and, and her, her booming finishing run has become uh, the source of her public appeal. I mean, she, she's got a Burnborough like finish, and I think that's what people are waiting for. It doesn't matter where she is in the run; they're expecting this flashing finishing run. And she always delivers. Yeah, she's, you know, just amazing what she does. It, it's um, it, a lot of it's um, early on dependent on the um, the barrier draw that she had, where she wasn't drawn to take up a forward position. So, um, Huey Huey basically had to take a where she was comfortable, but it meant that she was in the second half of the field. She might have drawn. Um, out wider or there was a lot of speed in the race. As I said, the tactics play a lot into it. But he, he now just gets her out where she's comfortable and she likes to settle in the, in the second half of the field and, and watch what's going on and um, and then launch. Yeah, <laughs> launch. That's, that's the word. It. That is the launch, word. Launch when she – and, and <laughs> Huey, Huey will tell you himself. I mean, he, she has this absolutely uh, Kenny knack of – you know, watching the leading horses, she chases the leading horses. Like, and and he's not riding her to catch them; she's taking him mm. on a trip to catch them. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, there was a, there was a typical race with um, red excitement. I think it was got a big break on it, mm. a big big break on her, and he was like six or eight in front coming around the home turn, and there was two horses behind red excitement, and he he was coming into the race, and he said mm. she got to the two horses running second and third. Mm. And hadn't seen red excitement, he believes. And um, once he got around the second or third, she saw red excitement. And he said she dropped to another, all on her own, dropped lower to the ground, another gear, and chased that horse. Mm. He said it's an un- he just he doesn't know how to describe it, but he said she is just a beast that doesn't want to be beaten. And uh, mm. when she saw that horse, he said she just um, it was an amazing feeling. And uh, I-, I couldn't imagine what it was like. But he said when she saw that horse and she knew what she had to do. He said it was almost um, like the afterburners went on and he nearly came out of the saddle. He said it was just unbelievable. 
Peter, no owner has ever paid a jockey a greater compliment than the one you paid Hugh Bowman last preparation. The mare was going to run in the Apollo Stakes, Huey was suspended, and you and Chris decided to scratch and wait for the chipping Norton. I can't ever recall a similar set of circumstances. Well, it was it wasn't just me, uh, John. It was a, it was the ownership group um, with Chris. Um, it was discussed long and hard what we were going to do and how we were going to replace you uh, became the topic, and we were, weren't short of offers um, mm. of people to ride. And um, Chris made the the very valid point at the time where it wasn't so much getting another jockey; it was they wouldn't have understood the pressure they were going to put themselves under and how they would handle it. So. He thought about it long and hard, and he said, well, you know, you put an experienced jockey like a, we'll say, a, a Glenn Schofield or a Brenton Abdullah or a Kieran McAvoy who are, who are really, really experienced, and he said, not even any of those as full senior jockeys would understand what it's like, you know, to, to absorb the great pressure, and they're only going to get to ride this horse once, and, you know, they can't, they're either going to be you know, destroy their career if they didn't win and they'd be blamed and just things like that. So it wasn't, it was so, um, Chris had always, even before Hugh got suspended, had always said that, you know, we, we, we he sets a plan for the horse and he always keeps a, a run up his sleeve, so to speak, so that if there was bad weather, um, a mishap, something went wrong and, and he had to skip one race and jump to another, that it wouldn't affect her preparation. So we discussed everything at all, and then at the end of the day, Chris said, look, we just enact what we've always said. You know, this is like a, a hiccup, like a, like a weather effect. Mm. We'll scratch from the Apollo. Um, Huey, um, we can, Wings can sit it out. We can wait for Huey, and um, we can just keep the team together. And therefore, everything just runs as per normal. And it just when he explained that, it was just like, the natural thing to do it really wasn't much i don't think it took us more than about 30 seconds to all agree on it and debbie was nodding and richard was nodding i said well that just seems that that's what we'll do and no problem at all so that's how it happened peter looking ahead will the syndicate be involved in her breeding future i mean you have no history at all as a thoroughbred breeder um, and i don't know uh, whether debbie or richard Treweek are interested in that aspect of it but do you see the, th- the three of you staying together uh, for this mare's breeding future? Well, Debbie's our ownership group expert in the breeding. Debbie runs a band of broodmares herself. So Does she's, she? Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. She's, um, she's very into the breeding and, and very good at, you know, what she does and, and watches the bloodlines. And um, I'd say early days, <laughs> we probably thought, well, it's not our cup of tea, but I don't think you could sell a national treasure. Um, for any money, any amount of money, and live with yourself. So I'm pretty sure, and I haven't discussed it with Richard, but I'm pretty sure that at the end of race days, we will retain ownership and we will breed with her and um, we will look forward to um, a new chapter in her life and a new chapter in our life. And we'll we'll probably lean on Debbie for a, a bit of advice, but I believe that, that that's what would happen and that would be the sensible outcome, I think. Winx has taken you on a fantastic journey. There must be times in your quiet moments when you think about life after Winks. Well, probably ponder what it, you know. It, it will be different. I mean, it's uh, yeah, we, we just want to make sure that we're not getting ahead of ourselves while she's racing, and that you know, when when it's 
when she retires and, and things are different, that we, we just want to go to the races and enjoy it like we did before. So, you know, we don't want to, you know, place all of our eggs in one basket and, and then she stops racing and we're heartbroken. We, we want to be able to just, you know, keep going back to the races and enjoying what we started enjoying 20, 25 odd years ago and, uh, and uh, in, enjoy what racing is all about, the social side, the, uh, the friends, the meeting, the, you know, the, the things that why we actually started going. And um, Winx is a, is a bonus, I suppose, beyond imagination, but everybody buys a racehorse and they all dream about winning the Melbourne Everybody. Everybody wants to win the Melbourne Cup and there's not one person who's bought a horse that doesn't dream that big. So it doesn't happen very often, as you would surely know, and um, we could never have dreamt, you know, this big at any stage that this would happen. So we're, we're grateful, we're humbled, you know, we're every imaginable thing that you can describe about human emotion and feeling, but um, we're just lucky in a way and, and we, we appreciate it. So we, we, we take it, um, you know, very kindly and, and, and uh, love the journey that we're on. Peter Ty, it's been an absolute delight having you on the podcast. Great to reminisce and great to chat about one of the greatest thoroughbred mares to ever grace the turf anywhere in the world. Well, John, I can tell you it's been a pleasure racing Winks and it's been a pleasure to be interviewed by one of the greatest race callers Australia's ever had. So I'm uh, truly honoured to be speaking to you as well. So uh, thanks very much. Thanks, Pete. For over 150 years, Inglis has led the way in the field of thoroughbred auctions. In 2018, Inglis again sold the most yearlings at the highest average. Last season, Inglis was number one for Group 1 wins and the only auction house to sell a Group 1 winning two-year-old. They sold four, in fact. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis, number one in its field. 